Good morning, Woodland Hills. Yes, make sure as I'm going through this message, uh, when you have questions, just text those into the number that was on the screen. And we're going to try to have uh, 10 minutes or so, try to have 10 minutes or so uh, of questions at the end of this. I enjoy that. And then the questions we don't get to, uh, we'll store up uh, for the Q&A that we're going to have here in a couple of weeks. Uh, Paul Eddy, uh, for those of you who don't know, he does not look like Adolf Hitler, uh, contrary to that cartoon. He's, he's ugly for sure, but not that ugly. So. And he's one of my best friends, and insulting is our love language, so uh, you know, just don't be offended on his behalf. All right. And by the way, uh, those parents of Echo Age kids, uh, don't think that we're really mean, uh, as seemed to be indicated in that, that clip. It was facetious, it was sarcastic, I'm sure you got that, but they're very, very nice. Uh, it's not a boot camp, so uh, just so you know, that your kids are going to be perfectly safe with us. All right. This message, we're entitling this message, uh, I am the worst of sinners, uh, but you're even worse. <laughs> and that is coming uh, on, it's an ironic pun off of this teaching that I'll get to at the end of this message that Paul gives in 1 Timothy, where he says, this is a saying, a, a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance or acceptance by everybody, that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners uh, of whom I am the worst. And Paul is saying that this is a saying that is worthy for everyone who's a follower of Jesus to accept, that I am the worst of sinners. Now, logically, that's impossible. You can only have one that's the absolute worst. Uh, But this is a mindset that kingdom people are supposed to have for reasons that we'll get into here in a little bit. And a lot of times we find Christians who will say that, oh, yes, I'm the worst of sinners. But in fact, is it not the case that our attitude is often, as is expressed in this title, yeah, I'm the worst of sinners, but man, at least I'm not like that person. Uh, and that catches us in what we're going to see here, one of the main reasons, in fact, the main reason why we have trouble living in the kind of love that Christ calls us to live in. So what we're doing right now is we're hovering over this passage in Colossians. As we're studying the book of Colossians here, uh, we're hovering over verse 14. A very, very, very important verse. Where Paul says that above all, after he's given us a lot of different instruction, he says, above all, the most important thing, the number one thing for us to do is to put on love. Because love binds everything together in perfect harmony. Above all, the most important consideration for a follower of Jesus is to day in and day out put on love. We've seen here the last couple weeks that love in in the New Testament, genuine love, the kind of love that God is, the kind of love that characterizes the kingdom, and the kind of love that we're supposed to manifest day in and day out, it's defined by pointing us to the cross. So John tells us in 1 John 3.16, that here's how we know what love is. And really, this is the only way to know what love is. It's not about an abstract definition, it's certainly not about a sentimental romantic definition, Love is found by looking at the cross, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, so also we should lay down our life for one another. That, folks, is love. Love is defined by God Almighty putting aside the blessings and the prerogatives of of his divinity, becoming a human being, and then diving into our hell, our sin, and our condemnation, in order to rescue a race of people who could not have deserved it less. That is what love is. And so we could define love, if we're going to abstract from that, we could define love as this. It's about ascribing unsurpassable and unconditional worth to another at cost to yourself. Love's about ascribing unconditional and unsurpassable worth to another at cost to yourself. That's what God does to us. And that's what we're called to do to all people at all times, because it's unconditional and it's unsurpassable. You know what something is worth by what someone is willing to pay for it. And so we see what we are worth to God by what he was willing to pay for us. And what he was willing to pay for us was everything. He could not have paid a higher price than he paid uh, on the cross, and he therefore could not have ascribed a worth that's has more worth than what he ascribes to us on the cross. The cross is God's way of saying, here's what you are to me. Here's what you're worth to me. The cross is God's way of saying, here's who I am because of what you're worth to me. 
and that in a state where we were yet at, at enemies with him. We were, we were estranged from him. We could not have deserved it less. So God ascribes to us unsurpassable, unconditional worth. By, and he manifests that by what he's willing to sacrifice for us. And in doing that, he displays the kind of love that he is. God is from all eternity this kind of love. So our main call, our central call, defines everything else that we're called to do is to mimic that, to imitate that. As Paul says in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, be imitators of God, which means we live in love as God has loved us and given his life for us, which means we live in this mode of ascribing unsurpassable and unconditional worth to others at cost to ourselves, reflecting the worth that people have by what we're willing to sacrifice for them. So the kingdom is always about looking like Calvary. The kingdom is, it always begins where we start to bleed, where we start to sacrifice. So we saw last week, and if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to get that, that message, because what I did is I, I took everything the New Testament says about the absolute urgency of living in this kind of love. And I, I, I just condensed it into one message. And so we saw last week that love, cross-shaped love, the kind of love that's defined on Calvary, that is the, the most distinguishing mark of the disciple. Here's how you know that you're a genuine disciple. To the degree that we love like this, we're a disciple. Love is our primary witness to the world. Jesus says, by this, people will know that you are my disciples. By this, they'll know that I've been sent from the Father. Love is the all-encompassing command. If we get this one down, everything else we need to get down will be gotten down. But if we don't get this one down, there's nothing else worth getting down. And therefore, love is the all or nothing of the kingdom. Paul says, you can speak in tongues, and that's great, and you can have the gift of prophecy, and that's wonderful, and you can have all knowledge, and that's fantastic, and understand all mysteries, super wonderful, and you can even have a faith that can move mountains, but if it's not motivated by cross-shaped love, and not done for the purpose of furthering cross-shaped love, it is absolutely worthless. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. Absolutely worthless. This is the all or nothing. Everything but everything hangs on this. This is it. And so what I want to do this morning, and, and I'll continue this next week, uh, but I want to ask the question, what is the main thing that keeps us from living in this kind of love? What is it that blocks us from living in this kind of love? What are we up against? And there's a number of things I'm sure that we could say uh, that would uh, be legitimate, Obstacles to living in this kind of love. But at the core of them all, the foundation of everything that could prevent us from living in this kind of love is something that we do, unfortunately, we do as natural as, as breathing. If you have never heard me teach on this before, and I haven't taught on this t- topic for uh, a number of years, never ex- haven't done it extensively for about 10 years now, uh, but if you haven't heard this before, it's likely to mess up your head a little bit, so get ready to be messed up. But let that messing up happen. We need to let God mess us up. This gets on the inside of the way that we habitually think about ourselves and think about others. Um, it is, um, uh, it, it, it's, it's foundation and everything. We'll see next week, it takes us back to the very beginning. It takes us back to the fall, the rebellion of Adam and Eve. It, it's, a, it's a mindset that is, is, I think, beautifully illustrated in a movie that is one of the most, maybe the most profound psychological movies, at least that I've ever seen. It's Batman's uh, the, the Dark Knight, where he fights the Joker. And uh, uh, it, it really, I, I'm not recommending this movie for people under 17. It's dark. But man, it is insightful on a lot of different levels. Uh, and it illustrates what is our main challenge as we are committing to be a people who live in this kind of love. So I'm going to show a little clip from this movie. Uh, this clip is rated G, so don't worry about that. But uh, uh, in this clip, the Joker is doing, giving this social experiment. Some of you maybe remember this if you've seen this show. And uh, in this experiment, it involves two cruisers full of people. On one cruiser are found uh, Gotham City's finest citizens, and on the other cruiser are found Gotham City's scum, as they call them, uh, the, the criminals. And we'll see what happens when these two cruisers are pitted against one another. Let's watch it.
Sir, they've stopped their engines. Right, get on the radio. Tell them we'll come back and pick them up once we dump the scumbags. Liberty, this is Barry. Come in. What the heck is that? Down to the engine room now. Captain, got a hundred barrels down there rigged to blow in this. Why would they give us the detonator to our own bomb? <clears throat> Tonight you're all going to be a part of a social experiment. I blow you all sky high. Liberty, come in. Over. It's dead. Anyone attempts to get off their boat, you all die. Each of you has a remote. Blow up the other boat. At midnight, I blow you all up. If, however, one of you presses the button, I'll let that boat live. So, who's it gonna be? Harvey Dent's most wanted scumbag collection, or the sweet and innocent civilians? You choose. Oh, and you might want to decide quickly, because the people on the other boat may not be quite so noble. Stay back. Well, now, who are you to decide? Uh, we ought to talk this over, at least. We all have to die. Those men had their chance. We are not going to talk about this. Why aren't we talking about it? We're talking over the same exact thing on the other boat. Let's put it to a vote. I want everybody to put their votes on this piece of paper. If anyone's got pens, pass it along. We need to get the whole thing quickly. Is one hundred forty against three ninety six four. So go ahead, do it. We're still here. That means they haven't killed us yet either. You don't want to die, but you don't know how to take a life. Give it to me. The Indian will kill you and take it in. wants to get their hands dirty. Fine. I'll do it. Those men on that boat, they made their choices. They chose to murder and steal. It doesn't make any sense for us to have to die, too. Give it to me. You can tell them I took it by force. Give it to me, and I'll do what you should have did ten minutes ago. Just so you won't be spending the rest of this message thinking about what happened to those folks on the boat, I'm going to give a spoiler alert here because I don't want you to be distracted. So if you're planning on watching this show and don't want to know how this turns out, 
Uh, plug your ears for 15 seconds because I'm going to tell you. Uh, just to let everyone else off the hook here, okay? So here's what, plug your ears. Uh, here's what happens. Uh, both sides uh, step down. Neither pulls the trigger. And just as the Joker's about to pull the trigger, Batman shows up and saves the day. Yay! All right. There you can go. You can unplug your ears now. Um, now, see, I, I, the, the, the way that turns out, I think, is a little bit unrealistic in the real world uh, that someone would, have, someone would have blown up the other boat, I think, uh, rather quickly. Although the way that they play it out in this movie uh, is an incredible illustration of the kingdom. When that guy comes up and says, give me that thing and I'll do what you should have did 15, 10 minutes ago, um, he's manifesting the kingdom. Because the reality is the only way to keep from being defined by the Joker is to opt out of the game. The only way to, 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 to beat the Joker at this uh, evaluation game, this kill or be killed game, is to opt out of it. And that's a very true kingdom principle. If it was a different sermon, I would have preached a whole sermon on that. Uh, that's what Jesus is telling us uh, to do when he says, love your enemies and turn the other cheek and never retaliate. It's the only way to keep from being defined by the enemy, keep from getting sucked into the evil of the world. And if you die, you die. But, but uh, we in the kingdom know that to live is Christ and to die is gain. So that's not a real big issue for us. So it's a beautiful kingdom model. But in the real world, the world, the fallen world, as it operates... That's not very realistic at all. But what this disturbing scene, in fact, this whole movie really captures, is, is the question of, of uh, uh, how do we assign value to people and, and who gets to decide that? In fact, what this movie insightfully illustrates is, is the arbitrary and hypocritical way we divide the world up into good and bad. And, and the Joker is always showing how the line between Batman, the superhero, and the Joker, the supreme villain, the line between those two is really quite arbitrary. It's a very thin, ambiguous, and arbitrary, socially constructed line. It's a profound show, though it's dark and disturbing in a lot of ways. But it raises the question, what would you do on that boat? If you're, let's assume you're on the, the well, either boat, really, what would you do? And that takes us to the heart of the question of, of, uh, of how do we assign value to people? Um, it, it really takes us to the heart of this uh, dog-eat-dog, judge-or-be-judged, kill-or-be-killed world. In some ways, this whole life is a social experiment, isn't it? Um, and the way the world operates in its fallen condition, under the oppression of the accuser, is he makes us little accusers. Satan is called the accuser. Uh, and, and to the degree that we're under his influence, we become little accusers. And we assign value to people based on what we see, based on what they've done. Wasn't there a part of you, if you're honest with yourself, that was sympathetic to the folks who said, look, they made their choice. They made their choice. They deserve to die more than us. Their life has less value than ours because of what they've done. And see, that just captures a fundamental presupposition of this world. We, we tend to operate on the assumption that people's value is found in what they do and in what they achieve or how they contribute to society or how they detract from society. And we work on the assumption that we get to decide that. And therefore, we work on the assumption that our life has more value than the life of another, especially if the life of that other person threatens ours. All violence is premised on this, this assumption that my life has more value than yours if your life threatens mine. That's why I'm justified in taking your life in order to protect my own. The world operates on this assumption. I get to ascribe value. And uh, my life has more value than that of another. If we didn't buy that assumption, if no one bought that assumption, you couldn't sell a gun. Think about it. It's all premised on the assumption that my life has more value than yours, or my, my life and my loved ones, or my life and my country has more value than any who might detract it. We are the ascribers of value, you see? Now see, this takes us to the heart of what is at the root of all of our problems in living in love. And it's not what most people would suspect. At the heart of our, our, our issue is that uh, it's impossible to love the way Christ calls us to love, the way he loves us, if we also think we have the right to assign value to people. It's impossible to love someone uh, and ascribe unconditional and unsurpassable worth to them if at the same time you're trying to ascribe worth to them based on what you see, based on whether you approve or disapprove of them. It's impossible to ascribe unsurpassable and unconditional worth to another 
If you're at the same time trying to assign value based on whether they threaten you or not, or based on what they achieve or don't achieve, or based on whether they agree with you or not, or based on whether you approve of their lifestyle or not, based on whether they're threatening you or not. In other words, it's impossible to love in the kingdom sense of love, in the Calvary sense of love, if at the same time we're judging. And the trouble is, is that we judge as naturally as we breathe. It's the main evidence that we're under the bondage of the accuser. As we'll see next week, the minute Adam and Eve succumb to the temptation of the accuser, they become accusers. They blame. And they assign worth based on what they think uh, another deserves. We'll see that next week. We do this as naturally as we breathe. Now, I've shared this story before. I want to share it again because it, it bears repeating. I haven't shared it for a decade, I don't think, so those of you who are relatively new maybe have never heard this before. But it, it goes back to the time when I first woke up to this. It's what really led me to write the book, Repenting of Religion. This experience I had where about 15, 16 years ago, Shelly and I were out shopping at the mall, uh, at, at the Maplewood Mall. And uh, I, like a lot of males I know, I'm afflicted with this, this disease where the minute I walk into a store, I get tired. I don't know why that is. I'm overcome with fatigue. Something about shopping just makes me so tired. Unless it's a drum, a drum store or a bookstore, then I'm excited. Otherwise, I get so tired, I can't help it. I can be well-rested, but the minute I step in the door, I'm like, oh. And so, but I like to go out shopping with Shelly and see, as is true of a number of couples I know, uh, Shelly, when it comes to shopping for things that have to do with the house or the family, she gets excited about that. I get very, very tired. So she's energized by what absolutely saps me. Uh, but I like to go out, you know, it's good for a couple to do things together. So when it has to do with buying stuff for the house or the lawn or the family, I try to participate and go along. But I get tired. I get tired. So uh, we go to the Mall of America, and I don't know what we were shopping for, but... but uh, She's about to go into this boutique store, and I don't even know what a boutique store sells. They must sell boutiques, but I don't even know what a boutique is. But, but uh, she's going to go to this boutique store, and I finally say, honey, and this is like 10 minutes into it now, I go, I'm so tired. Um, could I just uh, you know, pass on this one and just sit down and, and people watch while you go shop? And she's being the merciful wife that she is. She goes, fine, go ahead. So I, I get a Coke, and I sit down on this bench in the middle of Maplewood Mall, and I start to people watch. I've always enjoyed people watching. And then about five minutes into this, as I'm sipping my Coke, watching the crowd, I, for some reason, and I'm sure God was involved in this, I all of a sudden realized what I was thinking. I woke up to my thoughts. We usually aren't aware of our thoughts because they happen on autopilot. It's like the fish not noticing the water you swim in. We're used to our, our, our normal autopilot think, so we don't notice it. But in this moment, I woke up to it. I became aware. It was like someone put a megaphone to my brain, and I could hear myself thinking. And I didn't like what I heard. What I heard was something like this. I'm sitting down there just watching the crowd. And I, I noticed one couple and I think to myself, oh, what a sweet couple. Look how sweet they are with their kids. There's just such a glow about them. They, they, they surely must know Jesus. Oh, that kid's going to need therapy. Oh, what kind of a mother? Uh, what on earth? You know, some people just should not have children. There ought to be a law. I mean, goodness gracious. Hey, dude, dude, okay, we all notice your muscles with that nice muscle shirt. Yeah, what a pathetic way to get attention. I, I, I can't believe it. Oh, what a sweet smile that lady has. That's so sweet. Gay. Definitely gay. De- definitely gay. Uh, you, know, you, you, you voted for that jerk and you're actually bragging about it by the shirt that you wear? You've you got to be kidding me. Look at that self-right... Carrying a Bible with that smug, self-righteous look in the mall. I bet he's walking around judging people. I, that's, that's what he's doing. I, you know, and, dude, you really need that fry and that burger there. You know, I mean, have some self-respect. Pull up the pants. We don't need to see your butt crack. Uh, oh, what a pretty young girl. Why would you do that to your hair? What were you thinking? My goodness. Oh, there's another poor sap who's tired shopping with his wife. I feel for you, buddy. I feel for you. And there's this chatter going on in my brain. Yap, 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 yap. It was really surprising to me because I've always fancied myself to be an open-minded, tolerant, non-judgmental person. I think in terms of my words and my behavior, I, I, I always have been. I was raised that way. And yet, inside my head, there's a gossip column, a non-stop chatter gossip column about what I'm seeing. A commentary on, on, on every person I'm observing. And about the time I wake up to my thought processes going on in my head, I become aware of why I am involved in this sinful activity. And it is sinful activity. It is as sinful as committing adultery or anything else you can name. It's sinful. 
I wake up to it and I realize why I'm doing it. I'm feeding off of this. I'm feeding off of this. I, I'm enjoying this. There's a part of me, though I didn't do it consciously, but there's a part of me that was, was feeding off the contrast. It's like, though I maybe like to be noticed for various things, at least I'm not as obvious as that guy with the muscle shirt. And though maybe I'm a little overweight, at least I'm not a fat slob like that guy over there. And, and though I may not be perfect, at least I'm not like those people over there. And the contrast is making me feel a little bit better about myself, or at least a little bit less pathetic. I'm feeding off the contrast. And even over the positive assessments, you know, the positive things I'd see. I'm in the driver's seat. I'm sitting on the throne of judgment. Greg Boyd, the arbiter of, of good taste and judgment and parenting and godliness. Yes. I'm on the throne. And I christen this as I approve of this and I disapprove of that. I get to sit on the throne. And then God shows up. And it, well, I didn't hear an audible voice, but I did have a distinct impression. And, and the, the, the word was really this. Hello, Greg. Um, what are you doing? I don't recall putting you in charge of uh, being the judge of my people, those children for whom I've died. I what was your job description? Oh, yes. It's quite simple. Let's see if you can remember it. Um, Agree with me that every person you see was worth me dying for. It's that simple, Greg. Just agree with me. Every person you see, the only thing you, you should know is what Paul knew when he was coming to the Corinthians. He says, I don't know anything about you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's all. In fact, Paul said, I resolve to know only Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so the Lord was saying, Greg, resolve to know nothing else but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Because as a matter of fact, that's all you do know about these people. Agree with me and spread the kingdom. And so I there committed, in that moment, committed to just silence the accuser, the judge who gets to accuse and, and uh, excuse, um, and you know, just the... the the arbiter of good taste and refinement and character and godliness, I silenced that voice in my head and I just began to bless every person I saw. Just began to agree with God that that person and that person and that person and that person was worth Jesus Christ dying for and therefore they have unsurpassable worth. And I would just thank God for them and uh, say a short prayer over them. And as I sat in the moment, I, I just began to do that. And what's interesting is that it started as an act of obedience. I just did it because I really felt convicted. I just did it out of obedience, and that's how it should start. But I found very quickly that all of a sudden I had this peace inside of me and this joy inside of me, actually. And, and I, well, I, I just started by choosing to look through everything I saw on the external to affirm the unsurpassable worth that was on the inside. I chose that, but before long I began to actually see that. I began to see this beauty in people and this, and, and, and this loveliness in people. And... Uh, I began to feel God's love for these people. And there was such a joy and a freedom and a peace in this. The reality is that judgment sucks. Judgment sucks the life out of you. We don't know it because we're so used to it. We're addicted to it. We eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil all the time, as we'll see ne ne next week. But, but the reality is that the, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And when he gets on the inside as the accuser, he kills, steals, and destroys love and destroys joy and destroys peace. It's hard to be the judge of the world. It's a heavy crown to carry to be the judge of the world. Now, there's a part of us that likes us, this fallen carnal part of us, this idolatrous part of us, but the reality is, is that it kills the life in us. And the minute we silence that and set it aside... There is this unleashing of kingdom power and kingdom love and kingdom joy. And I became aware of, of the fact that as I sat there in that mall, in that moment, I was at the center of the kingdom. I felt like I was dancing with the triune God, participating in his cross-like love for all people. Uh, and, and it is a central thing. I realized that I was called to do. This is what it is to be a kingdom person. And so I have, in the last 15, 16 years or so, made this the main focal point of my life as a disciple. And it's a 24-7 job. I try to train myself whenever I'm in a public place, especially if I'm just waiting for something, a plane or, or, or whatever, to just bless everyone I see and agree with God that they have unsurpassable worth and say a little prayer over them. And I've tried to condition myself to, uh, throughout the day as I'm driving or mowing the lawn or whatever I, I'm doing, whoever I see, whoever I confront, I, I try to remember that my main job 
My all-encompassing job, the mark of a disciple is to agree with God that that person has unsurpassable worth and is worth Jesus dying for. And my job is to reflect that by sacrificing for them. And many times the only thing I'm sacrificing is my judgments. There's a part of me that likes that judgment. Well, i got to sacrifice that. But there may be times where an opportunity will open to sacrifice in other ways. I've tried to condition my mind so that when I get triggered, and we all do, we're conditioned to think this way. But when I get triggered and I start to form judgments on people based on what I see, what they're eating, what their lifestyle is, or whatever, to not get mad at that thought, that, that doesn't help at all. Getting mad at yourself, that's just another form of judgment. Paul says, I don't even judge myself. It's the Lord who judges me. So don't get mad at your mind as, it, as the accuser rises up, but just calmly set it aside. In fact, what I do is I actually thank it. I thank that part of my brain that raised that up because I, it serves as a reminder of what my, my real job is. It's a post-it note. So I just say, oh, thank you. That's right. I'm not supposed to be noticing uh, their, 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 what they're wearing. I'm supposed to be uh, ascribing unsurpassable worth to them. And it serves as a reminder. And so you train your brain to operate in this way. And it is, it, it, folks... I, I, I actually believe that it's likely that what I do as I am quietly praying for people in airports or in malls or wherever, uh, driving in the car, that, that probably is going to have more kingdom effect than anything I do in the pulpit. Um, because those prayers aren't just for me. Those prayers actually do advance the kingdom. You are now a conduit of God's love invading this world. And um, uh, that is the essence of what the kingdom is all about. The point of this is, is this. If it's, if it's true that above all we're to put on love, then it also is true that above all we must collapse judgment. If above all we must put on love, then above all we must collapse judgment because judgment is the antithesis of the love that we're called to manifest to all people at all times. You can't do both. You can't do both. They're absolutely antithetical. And this is the original sin of the Bible. Every judgmental thought you have blocks the flow of God's unconditional, unsurpassable love to you and through you. Every single judgmental thought. And so our job is to collapse those. Now, I want to end by having us see why this is. All right? This isn't just arbitrary picking out a couple of verses. I want us to see the inherent logic of this. And again, if you have any questions, just text those in to the number uh, that we showed earlier. Here's the thing. When we are living in love, ascribing uh, cross-like love to people, we are ascribing worth to them at cost to ourselves. That's what God does to us on Calvary. That's what we're called to do to all people at all times, no ifs, ands, or buts. But in judgment, what we're doing is the opposite. We're ascribing worth to ourselves at cost to others. Think about it. Every judgmental thought is taking worth from them and ascribing it to yourself, because at least you're not like them. It's it's idolatry. You're, you're, you're getting a false sense of life at others' expense. Judgment is antithetical, opposite of the Calvary kind of love. Uh, another way of thinking about it is like this. When we are involved in cross-shaped love, we are binding ourselves with others. Love binds all things together in perfect harmony. Love is the one thing that can turn an enemy into a friend. It binds all things together. When you ascribe unsurpassable worth to another, you're, it's a way of uniting with them. You're, you're being empathetic with them. Judgment is the opposite. Judgment is the opposite. The, the word for judgment is krino in Greek. And it literally means to separate. We get the word critic from it. A critic is one who separates things. The good from the bad and, and the right from the wrong. We're critics. Now, there is a good sense in which we can be critics, and we'll talk about that next week or the, uh, the week after. There's a way in which we're supposed to distinguish uh, things, good and evil things, but see, judgment separates us from other people. When we judge, we separate ourselves from them and put ourselves over them. And even if what we're ascribing is a positive thing, we're the one who gets to ascribe that. Judgment is the opposite of the kingdom kind of love that we're called to have. Examine your own life for a moment. Uh, think about one person in your life that you have trouble loving. I bet you have one. Somebody who you really just, you know, maybe you actually despise them. I don't know. Think about that person. And ask the question, why? Why do you have trouble loving them? And you trace that thought back a little bit, and you will find that at the root of that is a judgment. A judgment that you're holding against them. You have trouble loving them because, and now fill in the reason. 
Because they make your life miserable. Because they're not nice to you. Because they're so ornery. Because they're so sinful. Because they're so obscene. Because, because, because. That because is the condition on which you're withholding ascribing worth to them. So obviously, you're ascribing conditional worth to them based on you, the judge. You get to decide who you ascribe worth to and who you don't ascribe worth to. It's no different than what's happening on those boats. You maybe don't hold the detonator of their life where you're going to blow them up, but you are holding the detonator of your love. Who you get to... You're not loving like the rain falls and like the sun shines. Indiscriminately, you're picking and choosing. And what is involved in all that is your judgment. It's a judgment. We assume that our, we get to ascribe worth. Uh, uh, we get to assign worth to people based on what we see, based on what they do, based on whatever. And all of that is antithetical to the cross kind of love that we're called to live in and ascribe to all people. See, we live in a world that is under this bondage. We breathe polluted air all the time, the air of the accuser. And the evidence of that is he makes us little accusers. So Paul told us, we saw this last week, he says, the only thing that counts is trusting God and living in love. Uh, having faith that is energized by love. The only thing that counts, the only thing that, ma- that registers on God's worth meter is trusting God and, and ascribing worth to others. And we can't do one without doing the other, as we said last week. The reason why we have trouble loving is because we're conditioned in this accuser-filled world not to trust God. We have trouble trusting God to right all wrongs and to run the world and, and to take care of all judgments. And so we, 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 we take that to ourselves. We, we appropriate that to ourselves. We get to be, we, we're responsible for, for running the world and, and, and uh, for, for righting every wrong. And that pollutes our thoughts. And we habitually think like this, where we assign value based on what people do. The reason why the New Testament teaching about loving your enemies and doing good to your enemies and and blessing your enemies, even life-threatening enemies, even enemies like the Romans, the reason why that sounds to most people to be absurd is because we're so conditioned by the conditional valuing of this world. We're caught up in this evaluation, judge or be judged, kill or or be killed game, the Joker's game. We're being played by the powers. And, and, and so when we're conditioned by that, Jesus teaching that we're supposed to love our enemies and do good to them, it sounds absurd. It sounds ridiculous. It sounds foolish. It sounds unpatriotic. It sounds immoral. And yet there it is. So Jesus, as a way of helping us get free, to love in the radical, crazy, foolish-looking way that he calls us to love, the way God loves us, to set us free, what he does is this. And I'll share a lot more verses about this in the weeks to come, but I want to end with this verse, and then we'll get to some questions. Uh, um, He he tells us this in Matthew 7, don't judge if you don't want to be judged. And why are you trying to find uh, a dust particle in your neighbor's eye when you've got a log sticking out of your own? So what he's doing there is this. All judgment presupposes that you're superior. All of it presupposes that you're superior. You sit on the throne of judgment. So what Jesus does is he reverses it. And he's saying to his disciples, whatever sin, whatever sin you see in another, consider that to be a mere dust particle. Compared to your own sin, which is like a log, a tree. Think about that. A tree compared to a log. And it's not that the disciples were actually worse than everybody else. They probably were better than average if you're playing the evaluation social game. But Jesus is giving them a mindset. Consider your own sin to be worse than others because that's the only way to get free from this judgment, you can't possibly judge anybody if you really can internalize that humble mindset of saying, I'm the worst of sinners. This is what Paul's getting at in 1 Timothy 1 when he says, when, when, when he, when he says to them, uh, uh, here's a saying that's worthy of full acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners of whom I am worst. This is what Paul's getting at. Paul wasn't the worst of sinners in terms of the social construct game, but in fact, he was better than most. And that comes out in some of his other letters. But he is saying, here's the mindset that every follower of Jesus should have. That whatever sin you see in another, uh, yours is worse. Consider it worse. And then your only concern will be to agree with God that they were worth Jesus dying for. It frees you from the evaluation game, the accuser game, the judgment game. And the only way to avoid being judged by the accuser's game is to refuse to participate in the accuser's game. We are to opt out of it. The cross destroys all judgments, all evaluations. We all stand before the cross as sinners saved by grace. And we are in a position to judge no one, no one at any time. Our one job is to say, yes, God, I agree with you that they were worth dying for. Okay, let's see if we have time for one or two questions. 
I'm sorry, I didn't quite leave uh, the time I wanted to. But we'll, we'll get to these at the Q&A, so uh, uh, come back for that. How does one balance this kind of love in an emotional or verbal abusive relationship? Marriage, work, or friendships? Excellent. Um, okay, uh, succinctness here. Uh, you know what? Okay, this is a really important question. This is all I have time to answer. But this is huge. Because whenever I teach on this, I, 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 someone will come up and ask a question along these lines. Here's the thing. Number one, we don't balance this kind of love with anything. It, it, to balance this kind of love with anything means that there's something else alongside of it. Paul says, above all, put on this kind of love. That means not only is there not supposed to be any consideration that is superior to this one, putting on love, but there also can't be anything alongside of it. To balance it means there's something of equal importance, but there's nothing of equal importance. Above all, we're to put on this kind of love. So don't think about it in terms of balancing this kind of love. The question is, is rather, how do we apply this kind of love? And if you're in a, in, a, in a relationship that is abusive, verbally or physically abusive, how do you apply this kind of love? This is my second point. It's this. It's one thing for me to say, I want to lay down my life and sacrifice for another. And it's something totally different for me to allow someone else to make my life a sacrifice. Jesus said, I lay down my life on my... He wasn't some victim. He laid it down intentionally. Uh, when, we, when we allow others to sacrifice us at their expense, uh, uh, for their benefit, whether it's verbally or, or, or physically or any other way, we are neither loving them or ourselves. We're, we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. Uh, they have unsurpassable worth. Absolutely. That's unconditional. Ascribe that to them. But you also have unconditional worth. <laughs> And, and you need to ascribe that to yourself. And, and, and so by allowing someone to treat you in an inhumane way, you're neither helping them because you're, in fact, you're enabling them to think that this is an appropriate way to treat people. That's not helping them. That's harming them. And it's also harming you. And so to, to live in this kind of love does not mean that we're doormats or that we're you know, just flower-throwing hippies in the 60s San Francisco or something. Uh, no, look, at sometimes love is tough. Look at Jesus. He manifested all the time this kind of love, and yet sometimes he got in people's face in a big way. Because sometimes love does that. Sometimes love has to confront. There's even a time where sometimes love has to say, I'm out of here. God does that sometimes, where if staying involved in this and trying to work mercifully isn't going to work, God, here's the judgment of God as he withdraws. Because otherwise you're enabling and love never enables. Sometimes you'll say, I love you. You have unsurpassable worth. But for your sake and for mine, I, I got to go. I'm going to step out of this for at least a time. Um, and so it doesn't mean at all making yourself a doormat. Everything we do should be consistent with ascribing unsurpassable, unconditional worth to another person, whether it's your spouse or an enemy. But that does not mean that, that love is always just this passive kind of a thing. No, it's not passive. It sometimes can be very big. Never let anyone trample on you. And that's not about your rights. No, it's, it's about you manifesting the kingdom. You're a person that was worth Jesus dying for. And so is the person trampling on you. And letting them walk over you is not honoring uh, that with either of you. And so now you seek for wisdom and how to, how to, in a wise way, confront this and, and bring it to an end. All right, all right. I wish we had time to get into more, but as I said, oh, also, I'm going to, on the, on the um, podcast, have a little addendum to this message to add some of the stuff that I took out. So I'll address a few more questions that way, too. If you want to download it and go to the end, you'll have a little pastoral extra that I put on the messages every once in a while. I'm going to end in prayer, and as I do, I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come up here. And if you are here and have any need whatsoever that could use prayer, I encourage you to come forward and pray with these folks. Don't walk out of here carrying that burden alone. Would you stand? I want to end with this commission. Uh, as we leave this place, can we do it as a people who are committed? Holy Spirit, help us in this. Committed to ascribe unsurpassable, unconditional worth to all people at all times the way God has done to us. And to do that, can we be a people who commit to paying attention to our thoughts? Uh, to uh, locating, noticing the accuser in our brain. And whether we're watching television or whether we're watching a neighbor or whether we're, we're out in the mall, can we be a people who commit to collapsing the voice of the accuser in order to hear the voice of the Savior and to agree with God that every person we see, friend or foe, was worth Jesus Christ dying for and to manifest that to them by how we think about them and how we speak about them, how we speak to them and how we treat them in Jesus' name. And if you agree with that commission, say amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out. Love the world.
Hello, beloved kingdom people. I hope you enjoyed uh, the message that you just listened to. I normally like to do these uh, pastor, pastor's extras or add-ons or takeouts or cuts or whatever we're calling them these days. I usually like to do them in my office, uh, but this morning I got up to do them and I found my, my uh, camera was dead. I don't know how it got dead because I haven't used it since the last time I did this and it was full. They must drain when they're just sitting there or something. I don't know what the deal is. But but anyways, I went to use it and the battery was dead. So I had to get to church here. So I just took the church thing with me and we plugged it in. So now I'm doing it from my this lovely office at Woodland Hills Church. Isn't it delightful? All right. A few things I want to say in addition to what I said in the sermon. I hope that uh, um, it uh, lands with you. The first thing is I didn't have much of a time, much time to expound on the way in which uh, the Joker's social experiment it provides a profound illustration of the kingdom. I, I mentioned how it provides a, a great illustration of how uh, we, uh, you know, under the accuser, we become little accusers and how we assign worth to people based on what they do or don't do or whether we approve or disapprove of them. But it also provides an incredible illustration of the kingdom. Not a very realistic illustration of what people would actually do in that situation, because in the, in the real world, I think the two boats would have, one of those boats would have been blown up rather quickly. Uh, but, Though it's not realistic to life, it is a beautiful illustration of how the kingdom ought to operate. The reality is this, that, I mean, when that guy comes up, uh, the, big, the big criminal guy, and he says, give me that detonator, and I'll do what you should have did 14 minutes ago. When he does that, and he throws it out the window, um, he is modeling exactly uh, how, we in the operator, uh, how we in the kingdom are, are, are to respond to evil. The only way to beat the Joker at his game is to refuse to play the game. And see, in, in, in the Batman movie, both sides refuse to play the game. So if, the, if, if there's any evil that's going to be done, any killing is going to be done, it's, it's got to be on the Joker himself who does it. And then in doing that, uh, he'll, he'll manifest the truth about how evil he is. Whereas if we participate in it, well, then, then he, can, he can deflect the responsibility and say, hey, look at it, I didn't, you pulled the detonator. You know, you're the one who did it. He gets us to participate in his schemes. So also, the only way for us to avoid being sucked into evil, defined by evil, participating in evil, is, is to refuse to play the game, the evaluation game, the kill or be killed, judge or be judged game. We, we're, we're just to opt out. Of the whole thing. This is what Jesus is getting at when he says if someone strikes you on the uh, right cheek, you, you turn them the other cheek also. Because if see, if you retaliate and hit them back, well, now, now the game's on. And then he hits you, you hit him back, he hits you four times, you hit him eight times, and now we're in the spiral of violence that has characterized the bloody merry-go-round of history from, from the moment of the fall. Um, Jesus says, no, just ref- opt out of the game and uh, never retaliate. Don't resist an evildoer. Uh, if someone wants you to go one mile, you offer to go two miles. Or the way Paul puts it in Romans 12 is, if your enemy's hungry, give him something to eat, and if they're thirsty, give him something to drink. Return evil with good. It's the only way to stay above uh, the evil of the world, is to just refuse to participate in the game. Um, the reality is that that social experiment that the Joker was, was playing in the Batman movie, uh, that is an illustration of life. We are in that game. Every day is that very same social experiment. Uh, it, it only becomes clear when there's someone who's an aggressor towards you and it looks like they might kill you, and then you have to decide, are you going to uh, kill them or are they going to kill you? That puts you in the same position as the people in that boat. Is, it, whose life has more value, their life or your life? And in this natural world, the world, the way the, the, this fallen world operates, the operating assumption is, of course, your life has more value because you're the innocent one. But see, this is exactly where the kingdom differs from the ordinary world. Because uh, we realize that we're not the innocent one. Yeah, we're not the one in this instance here who is, who is uh, uh, the aggressor. But uh, that doesn't mean that our life has more value. In fact, now that we know who God is and our whole value is derived from the cross, um, we're, we're, we're to regard their life as having uh, as much value as ours and yet to, and to be willing to lay down our life for them, even for our enemies. Uh, when you don't play the Joker's game, you're really saying, if I die, I die. And that's exactly what we're supposed to be willing to, to do. If we die, we die. But to live as Christ and to die is gain. Uh, and I honestly don't think that a person will be ready to really love their enemies and to commit to swearing off all violence until they're in a situation uh, where, where they can... Um, uh, re- they, they see the repugnancy of participating in this endless, mindless, demonic merry-go-round of violence that has characterized all of uh, world history. 
Uh, when, when, you, when, you, when, you, when, you, when you see the grossness of it, you say, I would rather die than participate in that. And now you're in a situation where you can actually uh, take the words of Jesus seriously. And, and we're, we live in this social experiment, uh, not just when a gun's being pointed at us, but really every day of our life. Um, because the question is, is, is uh, do, uh, how do we assign value? Do we assign value? Do we assign more value to our life than theirs? Uh, do, uh, how do we think uh, about people's accomplishments and what they achieve or what they detract from society, what they contribute to society? Is our view of them increased or diminished based on that? And, and what it means to be in the kingdom, folks, is that our view of God is totally defined by the cross and our view of ourselves and our worth is totally defined by the cross and our view of everybody else is totally defined by the cross. And that means, that means that to the degree that we really do that, that means that there's nothing that we see in them that increases their worth because the worth we ascribe to them is unsurpassable, but also that there's nothing in them that could detract from that worth, even if they're pointing a gun at our head. Because the worth that we ascribe to them is based on Calvary. And our central job, our central job is to manifest that truth to them uh, unconditionally and unsurpassably. And therefore, even if they're pointing a gun at us, think about it. Uh, the only other thing I'll add is, is this. Um, when you really get how central, um, how all-important the... That this cross-shaped love is above all, put on love. It's the most important thing. It's the, when you get that, it's the 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 uh, distinguishing mark of the disciple. It is our primary witness to the world. It is the all-encompassing command, and it is the all-or-nothing of the kingdom. When you get that, then then you merely have got to see how odd it is, and really how demonic it is that throughout all of history, love's never been taken as a criteria for orthodoxy. Think about it. The most important thing, uh, we don't have a record of anybody getting their hands slapped for not being loving enough. We've got a record of millions of people being put to death, burned alive, uh, tortured in unthinkable ways uh, for being wrong about the Trinity or being wrong about the Incarnation or the Pope or baptism or what have you. Uh, but we don't have anyone being rebuked for not loving enough. And yet, if it's true, if it's true that living in Christ-like love, cross-shaped love, is the all or nothing of the kingdom, then this ought to be the ultimate test of orthodoxy because to fail to do this is to fail at everything it renders everything else worthless you can be right about the trinity the incarnation your soteriology angelology and every other ology there is but if you're wrong about this if you're off on this to the degree that you're missing this it's altogether worthless first corinthians 13 1 through 3 which means that we ought to regard folks who put to death heretics throughout history as arch heretics think about it Rather than holding them as some of the heroes of the faith, as we continue to do, uh, people who murdered in the past, in Jesus' name, they're far worse than people who just murdered in the past. We've had murders throughout history, but these people murdered in Jesus' name, which makes their sin all the more uh, grotesque, demonic. Um, and yet we hold them up sometimes as heroes of the faith. You know, Michael Servetus was wrong on the Trinity, and that's that's a bad thing to get wrong about. He had a wrong view of Jesus, and that's that's a bad heresy, for sure. But when Calvin put him to death, I submit to you that Calvin was by far the worst heretic. Um, and, and so long as we refrain from saying this out loud, that this is the arch heresy, uh, we'll, never, we'll never hold up the right heroes. We'll, we'll never emulate the right people. We'll, we'll keep on minimizing love and thinking that being right about the Trinity is more important than living in love. It is so important to be right about the Trinity, don't get me wrong. In the Incarnation, I love at good theology, but it's all worthless unless we get this point down. Live in love as Christ loved you and gave his life for you to all people at all times, even if they have a gun pointing in your face. God bless you guys. God bless you guys. Uh, stay centered in his love. Take care. Bye.